When I finished secondary school, I was asked what I planned to do with my life. And the strange answer that I gave was that I was going to start a business selling hot air balloon rides in Guadalajara, Mexico. I suppose I should admit that I was an eccentric 18-year-old. But if nothing else, this statement reflected a genuine interest I had developed for that country, Mexico. A keenness that came close to obsession. It's hard to say where such devotion came from. Although in hindsight I realised that the Mexico I envisioned was a land of colour, passion and unpredictability. In other words, it was the opposite of the small and wintry city where I lived. Or rather, it was the life I thought I could have lived in Mexico that was so attractive. Maybe it had very little to do with landing there, only leaving where I was. So it is for the young sometimes. For years I continued to study what I could of that far-off country, learned about its ancient cultures and more recent history. From maps I absorbed place names and observed the contours of its volcanic landmass. I read articles about cowboy pilgrimages in the northern deserts. I watched Lucha Libre wrestling, and I learned to recognise the faces of revolutionary heroes. But this research had an unexpected effect. It also sharpened my focus on other places, even where I lived. For example, I was in Launceston when I read an excerpt of a Mayan poem which began with this line, The day set out from the east and started walking. I took that sun god as a role model, made this sentence a mantra for my own habits, and watched Lonnie suddenly become as exotic as San Cristobal de las Casas. I wanted to be woven into the day's journeys, wherever they went. And when I came across the summary of artist Chucho Reyes, who said that the world was an adventure of disorder, I decided that if you saw anywhere with a creative imagination, if you acted as if each day was part of a dream, if your life's events were like snippets of poetry or loose off-cuts of canvas, then you would find that everywhere you went was colourful and worthy of curiosity. I had been a nervous adolescent, but I was beginning to overcome some of that, as I realised how exceptional flowers could bloom out of the most ordinary soil. By the time I eventually made my way to Mexico alone, my eyes were wide open and my mind was eager to receive new information. I crossed the border from the south, For the last hour of my bus ride out of Guatemala, I was submerged in an intensely green forest, in which I remember only one other colour. A blaze of red on a billboard advertising Coca-Cola. The border area was of course a hideous, ungoverned mess, like a demilitarised zone. A haphazard marketplace where I exchanged quetzales for pesos and got in a taxi for the nearest town. The road was potholed and perilous, but full of promise nevertheless. 
I was on my way to the cities that had once been unlike anywhere else in the world. I'd read about them in the diary of Bernal Diaz del Castillo, a Spanish soldier whose first visit to a Mexican market took place in the 1500s. He was serving with the colonial force that would conquer the indigenous peoples of that country, trying and testing the techniques of political strategy, violence and introduced illnesses. When they entered the market in Tlatelolco, they were stunned by the excess of merchandise. And in fact, they were seeing objects that no European eye had ever seen before. Not just the works of art, the carved idols in wood or rock, or the jewellery in gold and amber and precious stone, but also unknown birds, fruits and vegetables and herbs, turkeys and tobacco, tomatoes and rubber balls. This was the new world. And the Spaniards would go home with stories that would astound a continent that had only just learned that a whole land mass existed across that ocean to the west. But the Spanish were not content with stories, or even souvenirs. They usurped the ancient emperors, dispossessed the original inhabitants, and colonised the land. Strange tourists, these. Although they were neither the first nor last travellers to claim what was not theirs. As for me, 500 years later, I had crossed a border and now had to go looking through the chaos and colour for something that I couldn't yet speak about. The plan was not to take anything, but to leave much of myself behind. I was young and earnest. My belief was that the borders that most needed transgressing were all within myself. And I knew that for a short while I would be winding my personal story into the tapestry of that place, intertwining with innumerable lives that had come before me in a masterpiece of woven threads which is where the colour came from. In the taxi, I simply kept an old traveller's poem on my tongue, repeating it all the way to the town. I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep. I have to confess that where I live, 
it's been easy to feel a bit cruisy about all that's happening in the world. In every way, Tasmania is on the margins of the mainstream of life, and it turned out that by shutting the island's borders early enough and sitting out a short period of internal restrictions, we have mostly been spared the tragedy and tumult that others have endured and continue to go through. So far. We've just begun inviting tourists to return, and as someone who's inherited his mother's deep streak of pessimism, I have kept it in the back of my mind that we might wind up back in lockdown before too long, isolating ourselves to keep the virus under control. Not that lockdown was too treacherous for me. I rent this old carriage on a beautiful bush block, quiet and far from the crowds. Birds and marsupials visit frequently, and I have a great deal of open space to run around in. I'd committed this year to learning from the forest's daily changes. And on top of that, I have a shambolic sort of library with enough second-hand books in it to keep me entertained for a few lifetimes of lockdown. Yet I admit that although our stint of isolation was brief, once or twice I noticed a sentiment like loneliness that came creeping over me. One evening in late autumn I even took myself for a walk, some 20 kilometres, a long loop around the local farms and the village, and I couldn't shake a slight forlorn sensation. A cockatoo screeched as if pleading for attention from the wide world, and the streets were quiet, the houses were all inward-looking, and I felt how far away I was that long distance from anywhere at the best of times, but then there was the knowledge that I wouldn't have any visitors for a good while. I thought of mates in far-off places, like Patagonia or Western Australia, people who I know I won't see for a long time. We've definitely been lucky. But this year I've also had the thought that we might just drift off down here and never be seen again. I've got to say, though, there's also something nice about the lack of tourists. Tasmania has been somewhat overwhelmed in recent years by its sudden popularity. You notice it in farmers' markets, on popular bush tracks, at vineyards or lavender farms, on single-lane highways. Tourism's an industry that, of course, brings money to Tassie, which can be helpful, but its detrimental side effects have also been pretty obvious if you know what you're looking for. Like, my mate who worked on Hobart's waterfront and had a cruise ship passenger pull out a map of the world and ask where the hell she was. In the hullabaloo of it all, there's occasionally been a sense that we might lose our place, if you know what I mean by that. And as a small population on an island full of idiosyncrasies, a connection to place is one of our strongest characteristics and maybe our most valuable resource. It's something a lot of us wouldn't trade in for any amount of money. I have worked in tourism intermittently for half a dozen or so years, taking visitors out for bushwalks in the high country. It's a job which on paper seems perfect. And indeed, some days or nights out there truly are. Among my best mates are many of my colleagues, an eclectic cohort of eccentric aficionados of the outdoors. 
a proper pack of weirdos with the strangest range of interests and abilities and personality traits. People with whom I've been lucky to spend long weeks spinning yarns and, now that I think about it, quite a few nights as well, under the stars with bottles of wine. The punters we take out are a mixed bag in a different sense. For the most part, I can't complain. But of course, because it's related to my workplace, I will complain anyway. I've endured a good many insipid conversation about insurance and home renovations when we could be enjoying the majesty of a mountain landscape. And I have heard far too many tales about overseas trips that were more about ticking boxes than experiencing anything new or genuinely exciting. And it's a strange sort who come out for a six-day bushwalk and don't want to be outside, but such people exist. I remember one man who'd come from Sydney and casually mentioned that he hadn't seen the stars for ten years. When evening fell, I told him if we went twenty metres into the forest, we would see the Milky Way, countless constellations, meteorites. He looked up from the back door of the hut, where the lights were still on, and squinted up at the sky. Then he said, Hmm, this'll be enough. It's about the most dismal thing I've ever experienced. But most of us could probably tell stories about tourists who merely want to skim the surface of the place they're visiting. Or worse. We all know the tales of the disrespectful drongos who go to Thailand or Bali or wherever, creating havoc for locals. On a beach in Uluwatu, I overheard a fella saying to his girlfriend as she set up to pose for a photo, a sentence which summed up the problem. There was this old boat on the shore, and the girl was iffy about whether she was allowed to climb onto it for the picture. So her boyfriend told her, You can do whatever you want, it's barley. Sometimes, even with my punters out in the mountains, you get the feeling that they believe that they should get whatever they want, simply because they've shelled out some dosh for it. But it doesn't work like that. I guess individual tourists make easy targets. But the real issue is that tourism in Tasmania has become a big industry. And as it's become more possible to make good money from tourism projects, greed has started to creep into the way it's all operated. The political power that has subsequently become part of the equation has also introduced the prospect of corruption, compromising the protection of the reserves and national parks which is where these businesses want to be. Tasmania's bushland has started to be exploited by developers who don't understand the ecological and social implications of their trade. Don't understand, or more likely, don't care. There's a thought I've sometimes had in the past, that although they may play it in a different key, Sometimes it seems like tourism and colonialism are singing the same tune.
years ago I signed up for Couchsurfing, a website on which you offer or request a place to crash, a kind of traveller's exchange. A wonderful thing in theory, although you don't have to ask around too much to find that even this forum has become problematic at times. Over the years I didn't use it very often overseas, but I do remember fondly finding myself welcomed by strangers when I did, and indeed I made some mates, in Tehran, in southern Poland, in Mexico City. And in the share houses in which I lived at intervals, I was sometimes able to invite tourists in for a few nights as well. Often we'd end up doing big cook-ups, sitting around a fire pot in the backyard with a bottle of wine, going for a late-night swim or an early-morning latte, or even an excursion somewhere out of town, a road trip or a walk in the bush. Once, two guests arrived from Tartu, at the same time that several housemates were moving out. So much furniture was in the driveway that it must have looked like we lived out there. The dinner table was in the carport, so that's where we ate. On an old surfboard leaning on the gate, my mate Danny had written, Welcome Estonia, as if that was a plural noun. I expect we were often unusual hosts to come upon. I can only hope it was enjoyable enough for those visitors who ended up in our care. Somewhere along the way I came upon a motto which mostly matched my experience. To pay rent is to buy the opportunity to offer hospitality. Another visitor came from Kuala Lumpur. She'd suggested that she'd stay a couple of days, but we immediately decided we liked her and told her she could hang around as long as she liked. Her name was Ez. She came and went for weeks. It was summer and there were plenty of shenanigans to get up to. In fact, she was one of the first interviewees I had on a variety show I'd just started up, which still exists today. This same mate of mine, Danny and I, were living together again. We made plans to take a day trip to a waterfall, and Danny was so set on being there that when his workplace tried to roster him on, he quit his job. He didn't even own a mobile phone then, so he walked down the road, barefoot, to a payphone to tell his boss he wasn't coming in. Ever again. The waterfall is near where I live now. It splits a precipitous cliff with ribbons of cold water, crashing into a clear pool, a hollow spot amidst fallen stones. Even in summer it's never warm. But Ez took an unfortunate, unintentional swim. She found herself slipping on a patch of wet sedimentary rock and lost her balance, gently but inescapably sliding backwards into the drink. It was like it happened in slow motion, but I don't think we could have stopped her. Anyway, it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Later that year, we reminisced on it when I met up with Ez in KL. We drank tiger beers and went to the Islamic Arts Museum and ate fish head curry in Brickfields. At the end of each day, we took the train back out to the suburbs where her mother lived. Ez's mum was an interesting woman, a Chinese-Malaysian Christian who had read widely and thought rigorously on political matters. She was also exceptionally generous, 
feeding me plentiful amounts of delicious Malaysian food, and of course giving me a place to sleep as well. She wanted to thank me, she said, for having looked after Ez that summer, although I tried to explain it was hardly an effort. And when I went to take leave of Ez's mum, she gave me a pair of trousers, a shirt, and then attempted to give me an amount of US dollars. It was all too much. But I realised that for this woman, hospitality was not at all meant as a transaction. It could have no price. It was one of the central tenets of her faith. Which in some senses is an extension of the ancient practices of the desert lands where her religion was born. The scriptures shared by Christians, Jews and Muslims demonstrate that in that part of the world, the traveller was sacred. They were a figure of some intrigue. They brought news, different ideas, foreign ways of speech. They were entirely vulnerable, yet also potentially dangerous. And their presence could be somewhat subversive. In fact, because they would transgress a household's general way of doing things, if only through ignorance, they almost couldn't avoid ruffling feathers. But likewise, a traveller might well be an angel, a messenger from another realm. So to refuse to offer hospitality was risky business. You might well miss out on a great blessing. This was something I was also told, almost exactly, by a man from Western India. Pankaj was a pretty rough character. We'd had a few beers around a bonfire in the middle of a village the night before I left his town. I don't suppose anyone confused me for an angel. But even still, Punkage walked me to where I was staying, shook my hand, and said to me with some emotion, Atiti Devo Bawa. The guest is like a god. I like to travel overland as much as possible, sometimes even to simply walk for hundreds of kilometres at a time if I can. That way I'm never out of touch with the ground and more closely connected to the people whose land it is. Travelling on hoof forces you into a bit of simplicity. It allows you less control. Slumped empty at my feet right now is a small black backpack, maybe 30 litres capacity, which I took with me on one of my longest passages away. Obviously it was packed with the barest essentials, objects which I traded as I travelled, a few changes of clothes, a sleeping bag, a paperback. 
and I made my own notebook for that trip. A shoddy piece of craftsmanship. And on it I scrawled a title as if to guide what I'd write over those months. It was called How to Be a Nobody. It would be a period of my life where I would become a pared-back version of myself. No job, no friends, no family, nowhere I needed to be. And hopefully as much as possible, no prejudice, no expectations. Open eyes and an inquisitive mind. I roamed around southern Europe and hoped to learn. I was submitting, I guess, to the whims of Hermes, the Greek god of wanderers. In fact, I walked in the landscapes where his cans are still left standing, although you may have to squint to see them, or must let your imagination witness to his fingerprints upon the stones. And I found new mates with whom I swapped belongings, meals and ideas. They shared their poems and proverbs, and I showed them video clips of Aussie Rules footy on the internet and taught them the saying, we're not here to fuck spiders. They sang old ballads and in return I sung them the theme song from Burke's Backyard. <laughs> the word they used in Greece was philoxenia, love of strangers. It takes a lot to craft that sort of hospitality. And in some cases, for those who suffer from a lack of trust, it must be close to impossible. But for me at least, I've come to think that such relationships are at the heart of a good life, close to the highest priority. Of course, the plot of world history is a cycle of narratives in which groups of people did not love their neighbours. Everywhere you go on earth, you'll find places marked with the memory of violence and war. Fights over resources. The consequences of the dark dream of Lebensraum. Give any mob an inch, it seems, and they're liable to take a mile. I came to a crossroads in the Turkish outback an intersection which led to four different directions. My map was a shitty little photocopy and there were no signs to suggest which way I should go. I ended up choosing a path based solely on the fact that it seemed the most likely to lead to the coast. I figured that I could suss something else out from there. I didn't see anyone for two hours as I walked downhill through a pine forest, the sea now out of view. But eventually I came upon a young man, a boy really, guiding his goats down a scrubby slope. I had a handful of Turkish sentences at my disposal, although the word lost wasn't one of them, so I wondered what would be the most useful words to put together in some sort of circumlocution to describe my situation. I decided that my best bet would be to say, Excuse me, I am stupid. Where am I? Just before I began speaking, I saw a small sign which helped me work out my whereabouts. And thought, 
Thank goodness that I didn't need to use those absurd phrases. A couple weeks earlier I had begun that long hike in a village called Guinuk, looking for a small gap in the forest from where I could start walking. A bloke pulled up near me and offered to help. He said I was in the wrong spot, and so I got in his car so he could drop me off where I was meant to be. What followed is a long and silly story. Suffice to say that I had a drink spiked a little while later, and was taken to an ATM where, with violent threats and pretty well off my head, I was forced to take 500 bucks out of my bank account. I was then cast aside, with no idea where I was. I have a single flash of memory from a minibus. I recall using Google Maps in the lobby of some motel on the highway, and I hitchhiked in a Mack truck, back to Goinuk. It was dusk, but I was determined to carry on. Yet wandering back through the village, I realised that I had no idea how to find somewhere to camp that night. There was a man in his garden who asked if I needed help. I didn't have many options. And clinging on to resentment about the day's events wasn't really possible. I was only slowly coming back to my senses, but... A short while later, I accepted that man's offer of a place to sleep. The next day I took off, and weeks passed on that long trail. By the time I finished, I had received countless generosities. In another village on a mountainside, after I'd walked nearly 40 kilometres in a day, I paid to pitch my tent in the front yard of an old man. In the morning he served me a sumptuous breakfast, worth much more than the pittance my campsite had cost, and gently draped a coat over my shoulders as I ate to ward off the morning mist, a gesture that made him feel like my grandfather. Whatever bitterness I might have felt about once being robbed had melted off entirely. And what I can say about the feeling I got from that long walk is a trope you'll hear out of many travellers. That for all the malice and greed you can find in this world, it is frequently enough overwhelmed by kindness. And for every villain you meet, there's a whole village of friendly people around the corner. It's a cliché, but no less true for being so. And yet again I learnt some lessons about the virtues of getting lost.
for my last overseas adventure, I went for a road trip in France, in a borrowed Mercedes-Benz elegance, an old diesel beast that I quietly and solemnly believed had a fateful destiny, a car that I assumed was doomed, and that would also possibly lay a curse on the two of us who travelled inside it for those several weeks and hundreds of miles as well. A million villages we passed, their names made of slimy syllables that slipped away from my brain even though I repeated them over and over, testing each one for its worth as a cute or absurd set of suave sounds à la française. In Trenyac, we missed the opening hours of the creperie by mere minutes. A tragedy. In the Auvergne, we drank liquor distilled from gentians that glowed gold and tasted as bitter as aluminium. One village we camped near was called Le Faux, which my French dictionary tells me means the wrong. It seemed a dangerous choice of destination. But even this was not a curse. We had begun our trip for the French border on a ferociously hot day. As we aimed for the corner of the continent, the sky turned platinum and the temperature dropped. We pulled into Calais, a small city which has had a spotlight turned upon it in recent years as camps of refugees grew on the outskirts. Indeed, it became the centrepiece of the British campaign to leave the European Union. But we got big goblets of blonde beer and directions for a municipal campsite, where for a small fee, the two of us were given a patch of lawn, about 10 metres by 10 metres, upon which we put up my mountaineering tent. Part of the cost was a 60-cent tourist tax, which seemed a painfully symbolic payment if only that was the real price to convert yourself, to change your destiny. Sixty cents to go from being a migrant to a tourist. It poured with rain throughout the night. The day's heat had frayed into a serious tempest. Thunder echoed round and round as if the clouds were pushing directly beneath themselves a rumble of displaced pressure forced out around it. The sudden movement of the lightning reminded me of a martial artist's quick reflexes, or a nest of snakes sporadically striking out at empty sky. I imagined the asylum seekers in makeshift camps along their routes all throughout Europe. Their shelters were almost certainly less sturdy than mine, and they were without the peace of being permitted to be there. They had come from and through so many countries, crossing borders that could change behind them like sliding doors clanging shut. They had all sorts of beliefs, belonged to so many different theatres of human dreams. Some were lone strangers. Many clung together as kin. They were Syrians, Kurds, Moroccans, Palestinians. Parents and children, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. 
they must hold each other more closely on such stormy nights. While some prayed to deities or angels, others sung old songs, recited war stories or fairy tales, or gritted their teeth in determined silence. We retreated into our tent and when we woke up, the morning was clear and cool. We made a quick cuppa and hit the road again. Later that day in the murk, some miles south, we would meet my brother, who went to Europe for study and met a woman with a Shakespearean name. She became his wife. And he stayed. All sorts of impulses make people move around the earth. The clouds fell with force again, making a curtain of white rain. Our cumbersome machine was hard to trust on the slippery bitumen, but we drove on. Our radio was a troublesome thing, and it perpetually scanned desperately for a signal. This afternoon was one of the rare occasions when it actually picked up a station. A deep, An enchanting score played on piano delighted us until we lost the signal again, dipping into a small forested area before descending to the Loire River. It was a journey that reminded me yet again of my incredible liberty to travel around a part of the world that was nowhere near my own, that did not belong to me in any way and yet which had welcomed me. Those who have travelled freely must daily understand that they live with tremendous fortune. And we might also want to think carefully about what that really means. For no rights come without responsibilities. I believe that should always be the essence of any traveller's philosophy. Even in a train carriage going nowhere, I try to keep it in mind. Between Calais and the Loire, I wrote a poem in the passenger seat. The storm lays out a maze of fleeting forms, a sprawl of vibrating claws and tongues that spread around in reaching, flaring orbit. With two poles and tarpaulin, I pitch my tent and separate myself from it. I have paid 15 euros for a flat patch of lawn behind a low stone wall which I can briefly call my own. Down on the beach a few years back there was another campsite in which those who could hide no longer would wait. Their tents were little better than canvas sheets and when the storms came they lay on their backs and hoped that an iron will would not attract a strike. The sky leaned downwards on them like a boar. Clouds compacted to thunder as pressure makes diamonds. In those echoes, in the flashing figures that lanced the sky, with so much of the world's dreams under the covers, in those nights, what could you see?